Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing over here? Good. How's everybody doing over here? Good. All right. Hey, we're on a great journey. I'll get to that in just a second, but welcome to Lakeside. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here, and so we're really delighted that you're here today. We want to be connected, and one of the ways we connect with one another is by shaking people's hands and doing the whole, you know, meet and greet, shake and bake kind of thing, so that's cool. One of the other ways we get connected is we've got these connect cards in the chair pocket right in front of you, and we would love it if somebody from your household would fill out one of those cards and put it in the offering basket a little bit later, okay? Uh, you can write prayer requests, how do we pray for you and your family, we'd love to do that. You can write those things down, again, drop it in the offering and we'll take care of that. Good? All right, so we're on this great journey. We're doing a series called, What If We're Different? And in fact, we are different, so we're trying to just figure out how do we love one another in the midst of that. And so we've been, in, we've been busy inviting our neighbors in among us to go, how do we love our neighbors even when they're different? Jesus is the one who set this up for us, right? One day, we, we've, been, we've been looking at this story a lot over the last few weekends. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, it says, one day a lawyer came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, can you give me just the great commandment? I want to boil it down, make it succinct and get to it. So Jesus goes, yeah, here's, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the lawyer's like, oh, good, thanks. I got it. I got, I got that down. No worries. And Jesus goes, and a second one is like it. And the second one is, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we've been inviting our neighbors in, right? We've been, we, had our, we had our, in our first week, we had our uh, African-American pastor, friend, and neighbor, uh, Parnell Lovelace. He came and spoke with us about God's word and about what this looks like to love our neighbor who's different from us. We brought in our neighbor, the imam, uh, Amir Nazir, from the mosque next door. We brought in our neighbor, the rabbi, uh, uh, Yazi Grossbaum. Uh, that last weekend from the synagogue across the street, like these are our neighbors, like right next door, and we're bringing them in going, okay, how do we love our neighbor who's different from us? Now today, we've got our last set of neighbors we're bringing in, and so our neighbor, today we have our neighbors, the politicians. <laughs> right. If you want to head for the exits now, you can, but... I recommend you stay. It's going to be interesting. Now, now so we've been working on this, this command that God gives us in his, in his scriptures that, you know, love your neighbors, you love yourself. But I'm thinking maybe we need a new command for this one today. So in uh, Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, starting at verse 43, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or one translation says, you are to be a grown-up like your heavenly father is a grown-up. And part of that definition of maturity, part of that definition of being a grown-up is we don't just love our neighbors. We don't even just love our neighbors who are different from us. We love our enemies. In the political world today, it seems like we have greater enemies in that sphere than in any other sphere in our lives. And so we thought, let's lean into that one. Let's figure out how do we love our neighbors 
who are Democrats if we're Republicans? Ooh. And how we love our neighbor who are Republicans if we're Democrats? Ah. You know, so how so how's that gonna go? So we're gonna we're gonna take a swing at this today. I've got we got we got a Democrat here and we got a Republican here, and they're both followers of Jesus. Yeah, right on. All right, gentlemen, why don't you come on up, please? Uh, I'll introduce these people when they uh, when they arrive. So, Ken, thanks for being here. Very good, thank you. Josh, thank you. Have a comfortable seat. All right. Or have a stool, whichever we have for you. <laughs> All right, everyone. This is Ken Cooley, and Ken is a California State Assemblyman. He serves District Eight, which covers uh, most of Eastern Sacramento County, but not including the city of Folsom. Ken started his elective public service career uh, when Rancho Cordova first incorporated. Ken was on the first city council and served two different terms as mayor of the city of Rancho Cordova. Now serves as an assemblyman, and uh, he and his wife, Sydney, have been married for 42 years. They live in Rancho Cordova. Uh, they have a couple of sons and some grandchildren and been faithfully serving God through his work in politics for many, many years. So, most important thing for you to know today about Ken is he's a Democrat, wait for it, and he's a follower of Jesus. All right, welcome Ken Cooley, please. And this is Josh Hoover, and Josh is the policy director for State Assemblyman Kevin Kiley, who is a Republican who represents District 6, which includes uh, Orangeville and El Dorado Hills and the city of Folsom. Uh, Josh is also currently a candidate for the Folsom Cordova School Board. He and his wife, Nicole, have been married 10 years, and they and their family participate here at Lakeside. In fact, Nicole, who is sitting right here, she's on our music team today. So she was right over here on the music team. So 10 years for them and their marriage, and they and their family live in Folsom. They participate here at Lakeside faithfully. And uh, uh, Josh, for you to know about him, he's a Republican and he's a follower of Jesus. All right, so welcome Josh Hoover, please. All right, now just some ground rules. Uh, we've given out these ground rules before as we go along in this series, right? This is not a debate. These guys are not here to score points or to win a, a contest. Uh, it, this won't feel like a presidential debate, and you may go, there wasn't enough conflict. Well, yeah, yeah. There'll be enough. Uh, so, so what this is is a conversation, and it's a conversation to help us figure out how do we love our neighbors who are different from us. If you're a Republican, you probably see Democrats as pretty different from you. If you're a Democrat, you probably see Republicans as pretty different from you. How do we love one another even when we're different? Okay? So, Ken, let's start with you. You're our guest here today. So, so much appreciate you being here to be with us this weekend. Uh, tell us, let's just, let's just get to know you first by your faith story. How would you decide to become a Jesus follower? Yeah, I'm the youngest of four boys, and although we went to church, uh, I wouldn't say faith was such a prominent characteristic at home. That's where I learned Jesus loved me in Sunday school as a little kid. Uh, the big, the big family experience. We were scouts, a scouting family. I'm the youngest of four boys. We all became Eagle Scouts, um, and in high school, I started going to uh, a Young Life club my junior year in high school in San Jose, California. But at the end of my junior year, we moved to Monterey Peninsula, and I was given a New Testament. And I really came to faith just by reading the Gospels. 
laying at home in my room, reading the Gospels. Jesus became alive to me, and I turned to him in faith. Um, I went on to Cal. Uh, well, I, I had an outstanding youth teacher at my church in Pacific Grove, California. Uh, went on to Cal, got very active with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, was actually the chapter president at Cal, led Bible studies all the time in my dorm. I was always a dorm guy until I got married for my final year at school. Um, eventually, as a young married, my wife is managing a mobile self-service gas station in a very rough part of Oakland. I didn't have a job. InterVarsity wanted to ask me to go on their staff. And my wife and I discussed this, and I sort of felt called to public service, the public realm, to bring my Christian values and skills to bear in that realm. So together we decided, no, you have no job prospects, but we're not going to do the university thing. We're going to wait on the Lord. And I got hired as the top guy in the Capitol to the rules chairman in 1977. I eventually became a lawyer and worked 20 years in the private sector, but I've done legislative work for a long time. Uh, but so really I felt I, my gifts, I would say, are in the realm of teaching, faith, and encouragement. And the word definitely speaks to me and shapes how I approach my life. But I, I definitely feel grateful, equipped for my work, and my wife's been my life partner. Awesome. Good. Thanks for being here, Ken. Appreciate it. Right on. Josh, give us your story. How did you, how'd you decide to become a follower of Christ? Absolutely. So I, I was raised in the church. Um, my family was very active in, in our church growing up, and I did all, you know, youth group, and I did youth choir and all these wonderful things uh, growing up. I actually, when I got older, I met my wife in our young adult ministry at, at my church at the time, and um, we decided as a couple and as a, a, um, a when we started having kids and together that we were going to make that conscious decision to move beyond you know our parents' faith and make it our own faith and our own family and so uh, that is the the um, path that we have pursued and I think from that uh, I, I was also kind of had this unexplainable interest in politics from a young age as well and. I know my, my father probably wanted me to go into business, but I, I said, no, I'm going to study political science. So, you know, so I went down to, to UCLA and did that and, and really spent um, you know, a lot of my time invested in that and decided I want to work in public policy. I want to be able to influence the policy process, moved back up here to Sacramento and uh, started in the Capitol where I actually met Ken uh, when I was an intern actually in the Capitol and, uh, and um, you know, have, have uh, been doing that ever since. So. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So we have a couple of Jesus following uh, politicians here, right? And in the political world, it seems Do like... Do we want to describe politics, Ken? Do you have a definition of politics? Oh, yeah. We, we talked about this earlier. And this being a church, you would often have the pastor give you the, the source of the word in Greek. So politics comes from the Greek word poly, meaning many, and ticks, meaning blood-sucking insects. <laughs> <laughs> that's good thank you for that opportunity yeah, John. Nice. i was waiting for it good way to frame the discussion <laughs> that's a great way to frame the discussion exactly so since we have many blood-sucking insects that we're talking about we, we we have been talking about the idea that it's hard to love someone you don't know and sometimes we intentionally don't know our political uh, opponent or the person on the other side of the political aisle. What I'd like to do is ask each of you to tell us 
the, the, the big picture overriding view of the other's party to their satisfaction. So tell us, so I, I you know, so like um, uh, some people believe if you're, if you're a Republican, Republicans do everything right and the Democrats do everything wrong or vice versa, right? And so we, we tend to vilify the other party. I want you to tell us the best features about the other's party, and I want them to be happy with the explanation when you're done. Yeah. We sort of alternate in this. Um, well, I think the Republican Party focuses, very key concept is individual liberty, personal accountability, personal initiative, uh, prizing that highly. From that vantage point, the function of government should be to allow people and their individuality to thrive. You don't want government to be overbearing and oppressive, uh, affecting people in the exercise of their individual liberty. That idea extends into e the economy and what makes for a prosperous economy. That you want an economic environment where individuals can exercise vision, initiative, hard work, industry, capital, and grow without undue interference from the government, whether regulatory or red tape or excessive burdensome fees uh, and taxes. Uh, there is a skepticism about government, and that is sort of related to, I would say, the Christian doctrine of the fall and believing that no one's perfect, and so accumulations of power in government can reflect that imperfection. And so you want government to be uh, held in check and uh, this reflects sort of the idea is that government governs best that governs least. Um, and uh, I know you're going to kind of add a comparison that's very helpful, so I'll stop right there. Okay. Are you satisfied with that? Do you yeah, want to it wasn't bad. That actually, wasn't bad. Yeah. All right. No, you know, it, um, yeah, well, Reagan famously said that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help, right? Okay. So... Um, but, but yeah, so there is a skepticism, right, of government and, and, and this, this uh, kind of refrain from putting too much faith in government. But I think at the core of what Ken's saying and that, that I, I agree with is that uh, it's, it's about this, the sovereignty of the individual where, you know, the, it's the individual that um, is the kind of leader of their own life and not, not the government. And I think if you read our Constitution, you know, that's written into it where um, it, it is, it, it's all about the innate rights of the individual and it puts strict restraints on what government can do, which is really revolutionary compared to how governments had worked previous to that. So um, uh, th I, th I think that was good. All right. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll lead the way here. It'll be all right. <laughs> no, just kidding. Sorry. It's a great point. <laughs> a great so, point. <laughs> yeah, so let's have you describe the Democratic mm, agenda or big picture ideas to Ken's satisfaction. So, um, you know, I think when you, it's actually kind of funny because if you look at both of the California and the uh, Democrat and Republican Party platforms and their preambles, they start with a lot of the same goals and use a lot of the same words about how, you know, we want a vibrant and prosperous future for Californians. And so I think, uh, you know, at the beginning of it, I think we all have the same goals. We just disagree a lot of time on how, how, how we get there. But um, in, in terms of broad view of the Democrat Party, I think that the, um, it's this idea that um, 
if there are societal challenges, that it's the role and responsibility of government to step in and, and, and play a role in fixing those challenges. And then in addition to that, that you know, the equality of opportunity is not enough, that um, there also needs to be some sort of equality of outcomes, and that it's the, the government's role to, to ensure a fair outcomes. Ken, how's that? I totally agree with that, except I don't think ensure is the right word. Okay. Definitely on the Democratic side, they're looking at outcomes. If a person is in dire circumstances, there needs to be some sense that hope is possible. And I would say the Democratic perspective is kind of focused on how do I help people realize opportunity? Because in the absence of that, you have loss of hope, and that is just crushing. And uh, But uh, really, I think the framework of opportunity versus outcome is, is a very important divide to kind of think about the parties. But I, I don't think the Democrats are wholly right on that. I certainly don't think we anyone can assure it. But I that's why I jumped in with that, because I think it's such a superb point Josh makes. Good. All right, so I was at a party one time several years ago, and for some odd reason, I thought it would be entertaining to talk about politics. Always a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, turned out it was very entertaining, but not in the way I had planned. So a, a friend of mine and I were talking about politics, and he was a Republican, strong Republican, strong views. And the more this conversation went along, the more I got the feeling that he really viewed Democrats as his enemy. And so finally, I, I, I sort of interrupted him. I said, hey, Kirk, nobody here in the room, by the way. It's long, you know, far, far away in a galaxy, you know, whatever. So... <laughs> I said, hey, Kirk, do you think it's possible for a Democrat to tell the truth? And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm like, how do you, now it could have been switched. He could have been a Democrat saying that about Republicans. How do you respond to that? And how do we, how do we navigate in a political world where we have that kind of hostility toward one another? Yeah, so um, I think that... Uh, <laughs> First of all, if you work in politics, everyone at parties wants to talk to you about politics, <laughs> okay. which gets, is really fun. Um, when you work in religion, nobody wants to talk <laughs> yeah, to you about religion. Yeah, that's good, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I do have other interests, is my okay. point. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think it is really within our nature, and I think this series really points out, uh, it, it's just been fantastic because it's really in our nature to kind of go towards our tribes, right? Go towards the people that are like us. And that, that, that is the case in everyday life. That's the case in, in religion. That's the case in politics. Um, and, uh, un and unfortunately, what that tends to lead to and, and what it has led to with the help of social media and a lot of other things today is that everyone is gravitating towards their side as opposed to, you know, our system was really designed to, uh, it's a representative government that's designed to... Uh, encourage negotiation and compromise. Um, but in, in, in a certain sense, we've lost that. Everyone has kind of gone to their side and their tribe and, and is trying to score points for their team uh, beyond, uh, and it's kind of eliminated this uh, desire to negotiate and compromise. And so it, it's actually, um, how we get uh, how we go through that is we do things like this, right? I think we have to get people in a room together and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I think th forums like this and conversations like this, and in fact this whole series, what if we're different, talking about how we love the other and how we even have a conversation with the other um, is just hugely important. Uh, I was, I, I, I've shared, you know, I was reading a, an article a couple weeks ago. It was an opinion piece on shade structures in Folsom Parks. 
which is very controversial. Yeah, it's um, shame. And who needs it? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm not going to take an opinion up here. I'm just saying it was an article it, that took an opinion. And it was removed from the Folsom Telegraph website because of controversy. Okay. And, you know, I thought to myself, um, if we can't have a conversation about parks, you know, how are we supposed to have a conversation about just about anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think that's what's really important is getting beyond this idea that if we disagree with each other, then we have to be against each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I know you framed this conversation. Uh, conversation in the terms of love your enemy, right? Which is what Jesus said, which was revolutionary at the time, to love the other. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we don't have to, if we disagree, we don't even have to be enemies. We can disagree and still be friends, yeah. right? So I think that's important. On the same topic, I think this, I appreciate Josh's use of the word compromise because I think compromise often sets off a trigger in our head that that's a bad thing. But in a legislative setting, in a governmental setting, if I could relate this conversation to the Bible, a very fundamental concept in the scriptures is respect for others. You know, Peter, Second Peter 7 says, you know, respect, accord everyone the respect they are owed, love the brotherhood, honor the king. And really the role of the Christian in the world ought to be expressing the valuing that God places on people. And what is that value? Well, of course, it's the impulse of the incarnation, that he didn't stand off. He came to our aid. He came and lived among us. Very, very high valuing of individual people expressed there. Even the verse that's used for the series about who's my neighbor, you know, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And the point of that story is that the lawyers, as soon as Jesus says, love your neighbors yourself, asked, who's my neighbor? They wanted to figure out, who do I have to love and who can I exclude? Mm -hmm. And the point of the Good Samaritan is, who, which one acted as a neighbor to this Good Samaritan? It's like, conduct yourself as a neighbor to people always. That's the ethic of Jesus. So in the political realm, when you bring that sort of honoring of people together, compromise is actually about knowing your colleague Respecting that they represent a half million people, as Kevin Kiley does, and on your behalf, you are undertaking efforts on behalf of that half million people, and that there ought to be some respect for the individual, for their viewpoint, that you're not king. We do things on a collaborative basis. Representative government, turns out, works on finding representative ideas, ideas that can sort of form a center around which people who are who begrudge some aspects of it maybe, but fundamentally feel, okay, that's a fair resolution when you take into account everyone's views in the room. This is actually a, a process that honors people, respects people, builds on collegiality among decision makers, but we hear it as this word compromise, which often sounds suspect, but it's actually a very rich part of our democratic heritage to resolve things this way. Awesome, good. All right, so we've had you talk about each other's perspectives in this uh, and values in this. Tell us about your own. So we were trying to get to know each of you and then get to know these parties that are bigger than you. Uh, where does your party have blinders on? Where does your party, like, get stuck in the mud maybe? I'll jump in on that. Uh, yeah, I think my party has an over-optimistic view of human nature, I don't think they take seriously sort of the fallen qualities of people and how that can even express itself in government entities. Uh, 
there's a high reliance upon governmental power. I tend to be more on the side there needs to be checks on government, which is part of our constitutional system. Um, I also have, when I look at the world in which I live, I know God is king. He is the God of the book of Esther. He rules in history whether we see him moving or not. I see that he has established the church, which is actually the response to the world's need, not because we possess it, but because Jesus Christ, in him the fullness of God dwells, and we come to fullness of life in him. So the church plays an epic role in history to actually solve the needs of this broken world. Government has a charge, but the government, government is actually appointed by God. It has offensive tools and defensive tools. Um, that's the assignment of government, but it's not the answer to the world's needs. It plays sort of a constraining role, but is itself you know, just a temporary thing. It will pass away, and God is a king over that. So I sort of think my, typically my Democratic colleagues don't really see government in that limited role in this world that God rules. Mm -hmm. And I think their over-optimism about people uh, is a problem. Yeah. All right. Josh, how about the Republican side? So I've always viewed, you know, the Republican Party as the, the party of opportunity. You know, I saw this uh, demonstrated to me uh, when I was younger. Uh, my dad was born into... Um, very deep poverty and uh, was able to, you know, through obviously hard work, you know, raise through the system, I think that, and, and, and create a better life for his family. And, his, and so that was always kind of the, the example that had been set for me and, and one of the reasons that I, I truly, uh, you know, wanted to get involved in, and was the basis for my philosophy in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that, you know, in, in the current climate, I think uh, the Republican Party tends to do a very poor job of, of communicating that message and communicating, um, you know, this message of, of hope and opportunity and, and, and hard work and the values of, of family and, and education and all these things because I think a lot of times, and, and I think, by the way, this is kind of a critici criticism across the board, but I, I will say for, for my side as well that a lot of times we're too busy attacking, we actually talk more about the Democrats, to be honest with you, than we talk about our own policies, right? And so I think a lot of times we, we're, we're focused on attacking and uh, not actually s promoting what we actually believe. And so I think we could absolutely do a better job of that. Okay. So you both have given your careers, your career is pretty young still, but I, th I think this is the, the place you're heading, the way you're heading. You've given your careers to this political process. What fires you up with hope? for what you're trying to accomplish through the system? Uh, well, I certainly would say I, I believe, you know, my faith in God, the fact that he is the ruler over all things is, is fundamental. I relate it not just as a big theory thing, but as a practical sort of thing. In 1 Samuel, there's an encounter where Saul, the king, is pursuing David, who will one day be king. But he wants to kill David. They're out in this desert, the desert of Ziph, and Saul's forces are closing in on David. And it looks like it's going to, you know, David's a goner. If you're looking at it through the world's lens, David is done. And yet, a report comes to Saul, which I see God is orchestrating, that the Philistines are invading the kingdom. So in this, if you look at this as a, you know, this, this little scenario, we've got David here and Saul closing in, and it looks like David is done. 
But God does something new that changes the whole dynamic. And I call that praying the prayer of the desert of Zip. All the time in my work, I'm praying the prayer of the desert of Zip that God who rules will actually do something to change the dynamics around me. That gives me hope. I actually feel the voters did well when they created the open primary system so that multiple candidates can run and they tend to campaign more to a middle road position. That happens now in California. I think that is good. Um, I think the longer term limits are very good. Uh, for 20 years in the assembly, the most you can serve is six years. There's no career in this country that you master in six years. Mm -hmm. When people could serve six years, they were generally on to another elective office in four. So we had sort of very uninformed people who didn't understand the office they had trying to govern. They were fine people, but under that time constraint, it's very hard to learn the role. Certainly, you never learn the job of holding the executive branch accountable because you always feel like you barely know your way. Twelve years improves that. That's the current thing. A lawmaker in the assembly can serve up to 12 years. That would be six terms. And I think we are already seeing members staying around and gaining greater stature. And with that, they're actually forming collegiality that members realize, and this is a remarkable thing, that no 80 people can touch the future of California the way we can in the assembly. And as members kind of work on this idea of compromise, respecting one another, grapple with real issues, try to resolve what seems to be a solution that can be that representative idea that the center can hold on that, I think we're, we're making progress. Um, if I get the chance, I'll talk about why it's very hard to be in that arena in this very divided era, but I'm going to stop now. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think it's, um, I, I believe in our institutions. I believe that, you know, our government um, was created in a way that it will hold. I think it's, it is hard, though, to see right now with, to have hope in, in uh, when, when things uh, are, are this divisive. Um, I think this quote's been brought up a couple times, but democracy is, you know, the worst form of government except for all other forms of government. I think that's pretty true. Um, it's it's hard and it takes work. And so, um, you know, I think in terms of hope, I think it, it begins with us, right? It begins with the individual. It begins with the people in this room. It begins with, you know, having conversations like this and and really just sitting down and talking to each other and trying to love one another and encouraging other people to love one another. Yeah. What really helps me do that is that, um, you know, I, as much as I breathe and live politics, uh, I don't find my identity in politics, right? I mean, I, as a Christian, I, I find my identity in Christ. Um, and then after that, you know, it's my family, right? That's what I care about the most, and that's what I want. Um, that's what my priority is. Uh, politics is lower on the list. And I think when you don't have, you know, that perspective, so when you don't have Christ or when you don't have some other, you know, organization that, that you're involved in or family, um, it's, it's kind of easy to find your identity in politics because that seems to be the kind of the conversation of the day and that's what everyone's talking about, right? Yeah. But I think if fewer people found their identity in that and identity in, in Christ, I think that would be really helpful uh, to, to, to the divisiveness, yep. and that may help us to love one another better. So. Good. We have time for about one more minute from each of you. Just to maybe, maybe what do you want to say to Lakeside Church? What do you want to say to us as individuals who are following Jesus, but we live in a political world? One, one last word from you. 
Well, I was going to say on this issue of division and how you get leaders that can contend with it, George Orwell, of course he wrote 1984, wrote a great essay, Shooting an Elephant. It's not the Republican Party. It's, is that Shooting, a metaphor? Yeah, not, not a metaphor. <laughs> he served in India during the British colonial administration. One day, a native runs into his hut. Sahib, Sahib, an elephant has trampled a man, killed him. You must shoot it. Immediately, there's a throng of natives that are coming with this one. He gets his pith helmet. He gets his rifle. He starts to track the elephant. But he's thinking, a trained elephant is the lifeblood of this village. It's the time of the year when elephants mate. And, and everyone for millennia knows you stay away from them. They're more skittish than usual. If someone died, that's probably what was going on. And therefore, if I find the elephant, the elephant's probably going to be fine, grazing peacefully, and it's a great community asset. But as he's tracking the elephant, the throng starts to follow him. He comes upon the elephant. All is peaceful. He's reasoned it out. This elephant is important to this village, and everything's fine now. But then he takes the gun and shoots it. And the bottom line is when you're the Sahib, he says, you have to act like the Sahib. We need people in public life. Josh will be one. We need people in public life who are willing to take on their responsibilities, figure out what they think is right, and find a way to tell the crowd that wants him to shoot the elephant that I'm going to take a different course. And our system of government needs people that can give them room for that. And I would say... This could be a part of the vocation of the church in the world in our era to kind of honor people who will undertake to be in service of this limited function of government, let them exercise their best judgment, and give them some room to kind of find a, a center which honors their opponents, just as we in the world will do better in the gospel if we honor those around us, exhibit that quality. Josh. Yeah, I think, you know, Ken makes an excellent point. And when we, you know, it's funny because w we talk about collegiality in the legislature. That does exist to a certain extent. But when you step into the public eye and you have to make a vote or make a decision, there's all that pressure from your tribe to to do a certain thing. And uh, I think it, it, the only way to combat that for public servants is to have courage and, and to, to uh, as Ken kind of stated. So I guess my challenge would be uh, for Lakeside would be, you know, don't shy away from conversations with people. Don't shy away from, you know, be respectful, but don't shy away from, uh, you know, this disagreement. Uh, you know, it's, it's not uh, inherently a bad thing. Um, but we need to be able to have respectful conversations. And the only way we can really do that is to start it here, start it um, in this building, and, and, and really what our faith asks it, us to do, which is to love the other yeah. and love people that are different. So, Awesome. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. God bless you guys. Let me ask you to do something for these men. They, uh, to come up here and to address these things with you is not an easy thing. The jobs that they're doing are not easy things. Would you just, whenever the political conversation comes up, which in most of our lives is every single day, would you remember to pray for them? They're following Jesus in a tough climate, tough job. They need our prayers all the time. So if you'll do that for them, that'd be really helpful. Let me remind you as we wrap up this series, our... Our theme at the end of each talk has come down to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 
which says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. In other words, God took the initiative and acted sacrificially to meet our needs. That's what love is. It's when you take the initiative and you act sacrificially to meet the needs of others. We have the opportunity to do that every day with people that are, as Josh says, people that are in our tribe and people that are not in our tribe. People that are like us and people that are not like us and people who don't like us. We have the opportunity every day to take the initiative, act sacrificially to meet the needs of others.